Welcome to the 3D Parent Podcast. My name is Bevan Walters, your host and founder of The 3D Parent. I'm a certified parent coach and have spent the last decade living my calling in life, helping parents navigate the tough stuff like tantrums, sibling conflict, screen time overload, and managing the transition into the teenage years. My purpose is to provide you with the tools you need as a parent to lead with dignity, direction, and deep connection in your family relationships. My goal in creating the 3D Parent Podcast is to inform, empower, and increase confidence in parents so they can trust their instincts and make the best decisions possible for their families. For these reasons, I've rated this podcast FPEO for parents' ears only. Parenting is challenging, but you don't have to do it alone. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the 3D Parent Podcast. Today I am presenting with you a podcast episode that was not intended to necessarily be my next episode, but I kind of did a bit of a leapfrog to make sure that this was the next one I presented. And the topic is talking to our kids about race, racism, and privilege. Um, this podcast episode has insights, resources, perspectives, and um, is intended to take away some of the confusion when it comes to approaching such a difficult topic with your children. Much of what I'm going to cover today in this episode could be applicable to parents from any race or any cultural background, but is especially intended and especially relevant for white parents listening today who may be feeling especially daunted by tackling the race topic with their kids. So I can only cover so much in this one episode. It's such a big topic, but I'm jumping in with the basics today and I plan to address common reasons why white parents avoid these conversations with their children. My personal experience and Spoiler alert, mistakes from my earlier years as a parent. I'm on year 17 as a mom, and in my earlier years, I was ill-prepared for this topic. So I'm going to share with you some of those experiences and mistakes and missed opportunities so you can learn from them as I have, and maybe you won't have to make the mistakes uh, for yourselves with your own children. You can learn from mine instead. And also, I'll share how I was able to make a big shift in my thinking and start taking real steps to raise anti-racist children um, in the more recent years. Um, I'm also going to talk about race from a developmental perspective and explore how concepts like identity and biases form in children at different ages and stages. And finally, I'm going to give you six actionable steps that you can take right away to address race, identity, prejudice with your own families. So let's get started. So through my years as a parent and as a parent coach, I've come across several really common thought patterns from white parents when it comes to talking about race and racism with their children. And they sound something like this. This doesn't really apply to me and my family. We aren't racist and we just teach our kids just to be kind to everyone. Just treat everybody nicely. The problem with racism is that it's just too big. There's nothing really that just I can do to help make a change. I feel like it's always been around and isn't going anyway anytime soon. I feel powerless and hopeless. This paralyzes me. I don't want to talk about race with my kids. I worry they might start noticing race more and that might make them become racist. I want to preserve my child's innocence. I don't want to talk about such difficult subjects when they're young. I want to shelter them from pain and suffering in the world. We can save these talks until they're older. And then finally, the subject of racism makes me very uncomfortable because I was taught to try and not see color and that talking about race was impolite. So I don't even know how to begin to have these conversations with my kids because I feel overwhelmed. That last one, that was me. My experience talking about race growing up was pretty bleak because when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, it was customary for white people to embrace this concept of colorblindness. We were supposed to just not see color. We weren't supposed to notice people's races. And if we ever did talk about race, it was done so with whispered tones. Like, oh, do you see the black person standing over there? I'm not joking. This in and of itself was, of course, white privilege in action, but I didn't know that there was a term for it at the time. 
So as a young parent, I didn't really have any clear thoughts about how I was going to address race with my children. I knew that I was not going to raise a racist. I knew that much, but I didn't do the work and I didn't do the reading and I didn't figure out how one does that because I also thought that those kind of talks could wait until my kids were a little older. Um, so my firstborn child, the first time I remember any talk or noticing of any race was when she was around two. She was a big fan of the Wiggles, and there was a particular song which showed different pictures of children from all different races. And my daughter was very curious and was asking about their different skin tones, and I explained to them the best I could, and I kind of gave her the language and said, like, oh, that's, that's a black baby, and that's, that's an Asian baby, and so on. And this led to her watching that song over and over again whenever it came on. She would point, a black baby, white baby, Asian baby. It was cute, but, you know, it just was something that she did. And then she took this identification of um, different races into the public, and I was not prepared for that. We were in a music class. There was a baby in a um, car seat carrier. She walked over to the baby, looked at it, and pointed and said, black baby. And I was embarrassed and honestly pretended not to notice. And I think I just said something like, oh, yeah, that, that's a baby. That's a baby. And just moved on quickly because I was really uncomfortable and just embarrassed that she had mentioned race in public. Again, it shows you just how um, kind of uncomfortable I was based on how I was raised and kind of what was typical of the time I grew up. Um, so I didn't really talk much about the subject for a couple of years. And then when my daughter was around age four, uh, she came home from her new preschool and said that she didn't want to play with a particular girl because she didn't like the way she looked. This child happened to be Asian and I was horrified. And I admonished my daughter and I gave her a talking to and, you know, told her that it was wrong to judge a person by the way they looked, um, by the color of their skin. And I shamed her, honestly, for my own lack of parenting around the subject of race, and I dealt with it poorly. Yes, it was right to give her the message that we don't judge people by the way they looked, but there was a different way and a better way I could have handled that. And I'll get to that later. <laughs> um, when my daughter was five, the next time I remembered was uh, she was matched with an older student at her school to be her kind of buddy mentor. And she'd loved this the previous year and loved having an older buddy. But this year, she happened to be matched with a uh, mixed race girl. And I could sense from her some type of a disappointment with who she was matched with that lasted the whole year. And I didn't want to think what I was pretty sure it was, which was, she was disappointed that she wasn't matched with a girl that looked like her. And uh, we were talking about this just recently because we've been talking a lot about race and bias and prejudice in the last couple of um, weeks. And my daughter says, you know, the first time I remember having kind of a racist thought was about my buddy when I was in kindergarten. And I confirmed that I'd had the same suspicion, but I didn't address it. And I was like, didn't know what to do. And she remembers feeling that she um, was disappointed that she didn't have a buddy that had blonde hair and blue eyes like she did, and like her previous buddy had. And here she was 11 years later talking about this, and she became completely overwhelmed and racked with guilt about having these biased thoughts as a five-year-old, which of course broke my heart and made me um, recognize kind of some of the ways in which I had failed her. Um, and I explained to her a bit about subconscious bias and that, um, you know, we're doing the right work now that I wish I had done then, but that I was sorry that I had kind of let her down. Um, the next thing I recall a few, few years later, um, her school does a lot of social justice work. And for a few years, they were paired with an orphanage in Ghana, Africa, and they were fundraising. And the people from this organization, this orphanage, would come show us videos of how we were helping these orphans. And um, the area that we live in, in the Northwest, Seattle, is pretty homogeneous, particularly our neighborhood and our school. Um, there is some diversity, but it's pretty limited. and so. My daughter, when she was looking at these videos of the orphans that they were helping out, what I didn't realize was kind of an association that she was making in her brain, which came out um, a while later, maybe when she was seven years or so, and we drove by a billboard on the side of the road that had a large, enlarged um, photograph of a black child. And she said, why is there an orphan on that billboard? And I looked up, and I don't even remember what the billboard was an ad 
for, but it certainly wasn't about orphans. She, uh, you know, didn't read the word. She just kind of made an association. And again, I realized how I had failed her um, because she just made this association that a dark-skinned Black child must be an orphan like the one she'd seen in these movies. So at this time, she was getting a little older. We found more kind of opportunities like Black History Month in February and Martin Luther King Day celebrations that we would take our kids to kind of teach them a little bit about civil rights movement and some of the Black um, heroes. But I still, we didn't talk about on a very regular basis. Um, But the first real thing that we did that made a real impact in terms of how our family uh, talks about race and culture was when we decided to join the au pair program initially to solve a child care um, issue with our family. We were looking for some extra help. My husband was traveling a lot for work and I was taking uh, classes to earn my parent coach certification and working part time. And it was a very affordable option to have somebody come from a country to live in your home. Um, they provided a certain amount of hours of child care per week in exchange for room and board and uh, classes. They're here on a student visa, so they take classes at community colleges. And then um, they get a weekly stipend as well. But what we came to really love about the au pair program, and we stuck with it for uh, quite a few years, eight years, was the opportunity to connect with people from around the world. Um, All but one of our eight au pairs that we hosted were people of color. We hosted au pairs from Asia, South America, South Africa. Um, And it was a really great opportunity to talk about race, to bond with uh, people from different cultures and races from around the world. And my children had a great opportunity to kind of ask questions and discuss differences and make observations in a way that felt very natural and really helped us kind of progress in the way we were talking about um, race and culture with our family. But the biggest thing that really impacted our family and me in particular was our preschool choice when our third born child went um, to preschool. We were looking initially for just a preschool that met our values and was very play-based and a co-op style so that um, we'd be able to be in the classroom. But this preschool we chose came along with an anti-bias curriculum, which I honestly didn't really know what it was at the time. Um, And the teacher who was fantastic and absolutely so gifted in teaching this anti-bias philosophy and embracing it in the day-to-day interactions with the children. Um, Her name is Leanne. I've actually talked about her a few times on my podcast before. She's such a remarkable human being and such a great leader. Um, But in terms of this preschool, it had a huge impact not only on my children, but on me. Um, She also happened to be a person of color. She's Asian American. So it was yet another opportunity for my children to interact with people with races different from their own. Um, The school also, uh, Leanne would teach a two-night class every year that I got to take four times on anti-bias training for parents and families so we could bring these practices home. And it was such a great way for us to learn about how to address bias and how it forms in children and how we can do our part to kind of try and cut back on negative stereotypes and biases that children uh, develop based on where they are in different stages of uh, development. This was a profound change for our family. As I said, we began to talk more about race and prejudice at home. Um, I grew in my ability to spot subtle and overt racism and cultural insensitivity and appropriative behaviors and practices in my communities. I've started multiple uncomfortable conversations and challenge practices or curriculum that I believed was not culturally sensitive um, in my children's schools and have advocated for change when I felt was necessary. Um, I've started to become what I now understand as an accomplice. And if you're not familiar with that term or don't fully understand what it means to be an ally, uh, I have included a link in my show notes called White Accomplices that can explain this further. But this just gives you an idea of kind of where I've come in my journey um, and primarily as a parent leading uh, my family in this area. 
Uh, I'm far from done. I want to be clear on that. In many ways, I still feel like I'm just getting started um, because I have so much more to learn and frankly to unlearn. This is a lifelong commitment for me and honestly should be for all white people who truly want to be a part of ending race, racial injustice in our world and be an ally and accomplice to our black and brown fellow human beings. And I hope that this inspires white parents to do their part to help address what is truly an unfair burden for parents of black and brown children. We need to do our part. All right, enough about my story and this call to action. I want to dig into the meat of this episode, starting with when should you start to think about addressing race and helping to prevent prejudices and biases in your children? Well, first consider the fact that you even have to ask that question. That indicates your privilege. So remember that. Um, the answer might surprise you, maybe not. But honestly, this is something that actually you should be thinking about right at birth. Here's a quick rundown of what's going on in terms of your child as they develop identity to race and attitudes towards racial differences at each age and stage. I've put links in my show notes to um, the uh, resources I used to call this information together. So you can find that if you wanna research further. Um, at birth, babies look at all faces an equal amount regardless of race, but by three months, they show a preference for looking at the faces that match the race of their primary caregivers, uh, regardless of their own race, of course. Um, but they already show uh, a preference towards looking at faces that match their own race. By toddlerhood, children have begun to link race with behaviors and show preference um, in their playmates based on race. And they also start becoming curious, observing differences between people. Uh, between the ages of two and a half and three and a half, children also start to become aware of negative stereotypes and may show fear around people who have different skin colors than their own or speak a different language. In the preschool years, children, they start to seek labels for race. They want to understand cultural identity and gender and form opinions and theories about what it means to be from one race or another. So my daughter, when she was kind of labeling the babies on that Wiggles video, that was age appropriate. And the fact that I kind of gave her the name for the different races was completely right in line. Um, I just got, for some reason, spooked when this happened amongst other people and in public. Um, but that is completely normal. Um, when it talks about kids forming opinions and theories, that even though my daughter was a little older when she called the child on the billboard an orphan, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, she formed her own, her own theory about what um, a child that looked like that, who they were in this world. And her theory was, oh, children that look like that are orphans. So that is kind of an example of how that plays out at that age and stage. Um, these, keep in mind, are largely influenced by verbal and nonverbal responses from adults. So things that we sometimes don't even notice that we do, walking a little faster when you walk by people of a certain race, things of that nature, um, kids pick up on those nonverbal cues. By the time kids reach the age of five, the age most children are entering kindergarten, they've already developed a core sense of racial identity. White children are already shown to have a strong bias in favor of whiteness, but that's not the case with black and brown children of the same age, interestingly enough. If a child perceives that there is a negative societal bias towards their race, this can have a huge negative impact on their self-esteem, their behavior, and their school performance. And keep in mind again, that is when they are just entering kindergarten. Um, during the elementary school years, like ages six through around age nine, um, children's cognitive skills are increasing and children are becoming more adept at analyzing their own ideas around their identities and those of others. And they also start to challenge or accept societal 
stereotypes. Um, here's the good news. At this age group, research has shown that between the ages of five to seven, explicit conversations around interracial friendships can have a dramatic effect on attitudes towards race in as little as a week. So that's pretty impressive information there to keep in mind about the importance and impact of just explicit, direct conversations. More about that in a minute. Uh, between the ages of 10 to 12, kind of those tween years, attitudes have solidified and implicit biases are solidly set by ages 10 to 12. And the older that children get, the harder it is to change those attitudes, except if there is a life-changing event that presents enough of a challenge on pre-existing beliefs. Remember that, that bit right there. Life-changing events that presents enough of a challenge on pre-existing beliefs and biases. That just happened recently in my own family, and I'm going to share that story in a little bit. So that said, children at this age are also able to take different perspectives into account and have a deeper understanding of what racism is and are more equipped to take social action. So that's also kind of like the good news here. That doesn't change that they may have solidified implicit or you know, subconscious biases. However, they better understand racism and they can take social action if they feel moved to do so. So now what I want to give you is my six steps for beginning or increasing, if you already have started to begin, increasing your efforts to address race, identity, prejudice, and perhaps privilege with your family. Step one, start first by committing to deepen your own understanding, to educating yourself. You need to do the work, parents. I need to do the work. Read the books, watch the doc documentaries and the movies that deal with race. Recognize your own biases and racism and your own privilege. If you're one of those people that thinks that you're not racist, or perhaps you don't recognize if you have subconscious bias or don't really understand implicit bias, I encourage you to take a free test. It's the Harvard Implicit Association Test, or IAT, and see how you score. There's lots of different variations of this test. I put the link in my show notes. Um, and you'll go there and you'll see there's a lot of different versions you could take, but I suggest just starting with the black-white test. Um, or if you're a person of color, maybe take the colorism test because we know that racism also exists even within a certain race. Um, so take the test. See if you learn anything from doing it. If you need more convincing, do some research and find out what exactly white privilege is and some examples of that to help you better identify it in your own life. I'm not going to go and list tons of books um, to read about race and systematic racism and privilege um, because there's many people who've already done so and their focus is more on education in this area. My focus is helping parents talk about these subjects with their children. So my resources are gonna be more focused on that part of the equation. There is one uh, resource I put in my show notes that I think is worth mentioning and highlighting here because it's beneficial both to you in understanding and deepening your uh, understanding of race and um, racism and identity, but it also specifically applies to parents. Um, our local King 5 news station did a series a few, year, few years ago called How We Talk to Our Kids About Race, Racism, and Identity um, that my uh, daughter's preschool teacher shared as a resource on one of her anti-bias training nights. Um, I put the link in my show notes. This is a really, really well done series. It's groups of parents representing different races um, coming together as like a group of parents from a certain race, and then they kind of come together as mixed groups of parents to have really important conversations. There's one tidbit that really, really made such an impact on me, and it was uh, what one of the Black mothers shared. Um, I'll never forget this um, on this series. She was talking about her firstborn son um, had just graduated high school, and her very first thought when he graduated was that he was still alive and to thank God that he was still alive. Not that he'd made it, graduated, reached an academic achievement, received a diploma. No, her first thought was to celebrate that he was not dead. Just let that sit with you for a minute. That is something I cannot even imagine. That right there is another example of privilege. That's not something that I've thought about in terms of my children 
just hoping that they're not dead on their graduation day. It's heartbreaking. But that was a really impactful comment that mother made. And there's a lot more great um, information in that uh, resource. So you can find it in my show notes. Um, don't wait until you have done all the research and read all the books before you do the next step, which is step two, to take the lead and starting the conversation about these topics, about race and racism with your children. It's not enough just to tell your kids to be kind to everyone. These conversations need to be direct and explicit and about race and racism and privilege. Um, I, in my early years, kind of thought that just addressing teachable moments as they came about would maybe be enough and I would just wait for the questions um, or observe a behavior that needed to be addressed. I failed in that too, as I shared, um, but, I, but I was wrong. Um, again, my family does not live in a very diverse area and our school is fairly homogeneous. Um, I can't just wait for teachable moments to arrive in an area where there's not a lot of diversity to begin with. Um, so I need to take the part and other people that are in similar situations need to do our part to be very intentional with our approach to these conversations. Uh, with very young children, just start by noticing differences and teach the language around race. Young children find it really interesting to talk about things like why why am I called white? Uh, is my skin actually white? No, it's actually more of a tan color. Um, some people are called black, but is their skin actually black? No, black people have skin that comes in different shades of brown. Um, just notice those differences and talk about them. Just normalize that discussing race is fine. It's fine to make these observations. They exist, so why don't we talk about them? Just normalize that. This is not something that should be taboo. Um, when you're having these conversations with your kids, make sure that you don't make false equivalencies. What I mean by that is um, fear of the police for a black person or fear of immigration or being separated from your children um, because you speak Spanish in public. You might be tempted to equate these fears um, like to a fear that your child might have around getting lost or um, fear of strangers, but this is not a good idea because it really downplays and waters down the true uh, severity of racism that is being experienced by others. It's far better to explain it and to say, gosh, I can't even imagine what that would feel like than to make an equivalency or draw a connection that really is not valid. Um, children from very young ages, as young as four or five, they become aware when there are big events going on, particularly like what we've been going through recently um, in the news. And so it, particularly if you have older children or they've maybe overheard news being on or you and your spouse have had conversations in earshot. So ask some kind of questions and kind of test to see if your younger children um, know anything. And then you can kind of address it at an age appropriate level. But kids just a tiny bit older, like ages six, seven, eight, they're ready for some of these harder talks earlier than you probably think. Topics like systematic racism, police brutality, white privilege, the difference between equality and equity. You can present this information simply and then see if your child has questions and that will kind of gauge your child's level of understanding and readiness for more. Um, I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of a description of this conversation because I know this seems a little mind boggling and I covered all this territory with my seven-year-old daughter recently. Um, she is aware of a lot because she's overheard, she has teenage siblings. And so she um, is, is hearing things and it was important for me to address it with her. We did talk exactly about what happened with George Floyd. And we also talked about the history of police brutality towards black people. Um, we talked about white privilege and I explained some examples of different ways that we don't have to worry or fear some things that people of color do, like going for jobs or being followed in a store because you're, um, there's suspicion that you might steal something or being more likely to be hurt or killed by the police. We went on to talk about the difference between equality and equity. That's a big one, but I used an analogy. It's a little simplified, but I used the analogy of two kids, one child's white, one child's black in a running race. And uh, the child who's white gets to start um, 100 meters ahead of the black child, which kind of 
kind of, I, I said, kind of represents all the, the difficulties and hardships and prejudice that, um, you know, a black person has to face. And uh, the example was, this was a fair and equal race, and that both children had to start at the same time, and that they had to cross the finish line um, to determine who the winner was. And she knew immediately this was not fair. And so then I explained that equity would mean to support the black child in a way that would kind of make up the the difference, kind of lessen the gap between the two children. And a way to do that would be in this example, this analogy would say, if um, they started the race first for the black child to try and make up the difference till that child could catch up to where the white person, the white child was starting from. And then when they were both on the same line, then they could both run the rest of the race together. And that would be truly an equitable version of the running race. It was simplistic, like I said, but she got it. She understood what I was saying in terms of equality versus equity. I also talked about Black Lives Matter and what it stood for. And then I kind of was curious and I said, why do you think we don't say all lives matter instead? She didn't need my help. She totally got this. My seven-year-old child got what many adults don't seem to be understanding. She said something like, well, some people act in ways that make Black people feel like they don't matter and aren't important just because their skin is a different color from theirs. And she says that white people don't usually feel that way. And I also shared with her that really common analogy about the two houses being on fire. Uh, the two houses, sorry, two houses side by side, one's on fire, the other's not both houses are important, right? Yes, she agreed with me. And then I said, which one needs the help? And she said, the one on fire. And so I said, that's kind of like our black and brown fellow humans who are suffering and oppressed in ways that we can and cannot see. And that kind of explains why we say black lives matter instead of all lives matter. Um, and uh, when you're having these conversations with your children, that was the conversations that I've been having my seven-year-old, but for your children of all ages, it is important to give messages of hope to your children, to brainstorm ways that we can um, help out, to be empower, to empower our kids, to be part of the positive changes that we all want to see in our world. These conversations are building blocks. They're essential. It's not just a one-time conversation. They should be ongoing. White people don't get to opt out just because we don't have to experience racism. Keep in mind that people of color don't have that choice to opt out, and they have these conversations with their children at much younger ages out of necessity, out of a need to keep their children safe and prepared. Hey there, parents. Are you tired of feeling like your kids are in charge at home, negotiating, demanding, and generally calling all the shots? Well, then I have a free resource for you called 10 Steps to Get Back in Charge of Your Kids. Just click the link below to download your own copy. Let's get you back in the driver's seat. Um, going on to step three, I know that, long, that last one was a long one. Some of these are shorter than others. But step three is seize the opportunity to take advantage of teachable moments. They may not be enough all by themselves, but they still are really important. So things children say, even embarrassing things, give us clues to what they are thinking when it comes to race. Um, here's a few examples of some things that um, children sometimes say that can become teachable moments. Um, there's an example of uh, that was shared with me uh, from my preschool teacher when she was talking about uh, anti-bias that happened at school, uh, where there were children who had a bunch of baby dolls and they had um, dolls separated between uh good babies and bad babies. And when the teacher kind of came over to investigate what was going on with their play, she noticed that all of the babies that they were calling the bad babies happened to be the non-white baby dolls. Um, so that's one example. And I'll tell you how she addressed that in a minute. A couple more examples of kind of ways in which you can turn kind of an uncomfortable situation into a teachable moment. Um, kids mixing up um, two kids of the same race, or maybe two uh, parents of um, the same race, always kind of mixing them up and calling them by the other's names. Um, kids saying things like, I don't want to play with that child. I don't like the way he or she looks. When these things happen, you can't ignore it. You can't shy away from it. You cannot pretend like it didn't happen. 
Yes, you may want to chase, uh, save addressing it for a different moment, but you have to address it. Kids need information about their curiosities, and they need your help to clear up misconceptions that can become biases, can become these subconscious biases that are emerging in these early years. Um, so find some way to address these comments, these teachable moments right away or very soon if it's not possible or appropriate. And then start first by asking questions, trying to make sense of your child's thinking rather than jumping right into lecturing or teaching or shaming and certainly not overreacting. Um, so in the example I gave about the children separating the dolls, I'll be honest, one of these was my children. <laughs> um, my uh, third born child, she was part of this. And how the teacher dealt with this really helped me understand how to address these types of things when they happen. She went up to the little girls and she said, well, why are you putting those babies in the bad baby pile? And one of the little girls said, oh, they're all dirty. And then the teacher said, well, what makes you think that they're dirty? And then the other little girl said, well, they're all dark. And then the teacher said, well, my skin is darker than yours. Does, does that mean that I'm dirty? And of course, the little girl shook their head and they kind of giggled. No, of course not. And then she said, well, should we call someone bad just because they have dark skin? Should we call them dirty just because they have dark skin? And of course, they said, no, no. And then they kind of moved on with their play. But that conversation, it helped to undo some kind of biases that were starting to kind of formulate in these children's brains. And this teacher kind of showed them how to think about things differently without making it something that shamed them. It just kind of challenged some preconceived notions and then kind of helped kind of shatter them and push them away so that some new um, thought patterns could develop. Um, if a child, your child makes some type of a comment that's insensitive or points something out in a way that's rude, it definitely is important to address it and make a rule or share your values in a way that's really clear, such as it's not okay to tease someone about the way they look, or if someone wants to join your game, you can, you need to include them, not exclude them. It's not okay to leave a person out or even better, if you see somebody by themselves, ask if they want to join and play with you. If your child did something, again, rude or hurtful, it's important to help your child make amends if, if it is necessary. Uh, but if your child is too embarrassed or upset in the moment, go ahead and apologize for them. I'm sorry that my child said, made that comment. My, I'm sorry my child was rude. And then help your child get to a place where they can calm down and you can help them make things right as soon as you're able to address it in a calm manner. Step four. Model anti-racist behaviors for your children. You need to be reading books, talking about race, taking advantage of teachable moments. That's all a good start. But if you really want to raise an ally, you need to go beyond that. And that means teaching them ways in which white privilege can be used to fight racial injustice and to stand up to racism and inequitable beha um, behaviors and practices. So show your kids with your actions, not just your words, that you're taking concrete steps to be part of the work needed to reverse systematic racism in our country. Bring them along if it's possible to peace marches and opportunities for activism and volunteering in the community. And also show them that it's okay when you're doing this work. It's okay when you're advocating, when you're speaking out to make mistakes and not everybody's going to welcome your participation. That's okay. That's part of kind of the price we pay for our privilege. Listen, learn, and continue to do the best you can to make a positive difference. Step five, find authentic ways to add racial and cultural diversity into your family's life. Notice I use the word authentic. You don't want to just, uh, oh, let's go um, visit a part of town that has more cultural diversity or is kind of the, the uh, more prevalent black area of town. And just to kind of take your children in almost as if they're visiting a museum. That is not authentic. What I'm talking about here is make choices when it comes to things like the caregivers you're going to bring into your home, the schools they're going to attend, the churches and uh, faith communities that you're going to participate in, their teachers, their doctors, 
their play groups, extracurricular activities? Can you seek out opportunities to provide diversity there? Can you seek out opportunities to um, have interactions in a meaningful way with community that does not look exactly like you? Think about ways that you can do that with your family. Step six, diversify your children's toys, art materials, books, and media. Um, there are crayons, there are markers, there are paints that are made specifically to represent a wide array of different skin tones. Provide those for your children because, again, none of us are white or black, truly. <laughs> we are a mixture of all different shades of tans, brown, beiges, and so on. So get the materials that allow your child to draw pictures of people with accurate skin tones. Um, same thing when it comes to dolls, make sure that there is a variety of races in the dolls, not just dolls that look like your child, and certainly not just dolls that are all from one race that is not your child's race. Um, provide books with pictures of people who look the same, but also different from you and your children, more importantly, different from you and your children. Most of us, if we took a look at all, all the children's books that we have um, in our homes, there's not a lot of diversity. This is an area that I've been making a concerted effort to diversify in our home. Yes, it's great to include books on black heroes and figures like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. Those are great, but also be sure to seek out stories and picture books and movies and TV shows where the topic is not necessarily about race or combating racism, racism, but includes characters of varying races. Make sure that the media, the books your children are taken in represent not just the predominant white culture, but people of color as well. Um, I've put a link to a place to find diverse children's books um, in my show notes, so you can find more ideas there. But I wanted to highlight two books in particular because they're so relevant for um, what's going on right now. Um, the first book is called Something Happened in Our Town, A Child's Story About Racial Injustice by Marianne Solano. Uh, Marietta Collins, and Anne Hazard. This is a book recommended for around ages four to eight. And it's a book uh, from the perspectives of two families, one white family, one black family, who are discuss discussing a recent shooting of a black man by the police in their community. Um, it not only does it answer uh, questions that children may have about this type of event, but it also helps children identify racial injustice and empowers them to stand up to racist patterns that they might be noticing in their own lives. This book also has a supplement for parents, caregivers, teachers to help discuss racism and racial injustice um, with children. And um, I've included not only the title in my show notes, but also a link to a YouTube read aloud version of this book. Um, if you um, don't want to or can't purchase it or want to peruse it first or don't want any time to be wasted and you want to watch it with your children right away. The other book I wanted to highlight was um, a book called A Kid's Book About Racism by Jelani Memory. Um, I've also included a link to a YouTube read aloud version of this book in my show notes, which right now is the only way that you can access this book because it is completely sold out and back ordered um, everywhere right now. Um, it's going to be back in stock, but there's been such an interest and a rush um, to order this book that it's on back order. So if you go to the YouTube um, uh, read aloud version of this book, you can go ahead and take it in with your children and then wait for the book to become available um, if you do choose to purchase it as well. It's meant to be an introduction for young kids about the topic of racism, and it has a clear explanation for what racism is and how it feels to experience it. And again, it also helps kids figure out um, and learn how to spot it. So I want to encourage parents here to make a commitment to do just something at least once a week. So I've given you six steps. You can think of those as six different things that you can choose two, six different areas that you could choose from and do something at least once a week to really address racism and racism and privilege with your family. Staying silent cannot be an option for us any longer. We have so much to learn 
and unlearn as white people and so much to make right. This might have been my first episode on this topic, but it's not going to be my last. And I hope I've made it clear that we can't just coast along thinking that it doesn't apply to my family or I'll dress this when my child gets older. If you don't proactively talk about racial issues, you are unwittingly teaching your children that race is something that you can't talk about or you don't talk about. And if you're committed to raise accepting children who embrace diversity and aren't racist and aren't contributors to oppression, you have to get ahead of the negative associations and biases and stereotypes that are carrying on in our society. So do not be silent on the topics of racism with your children. You cannot waste any time here. And I want to conclude with an update about my oldest child, who recently turned 16. I talked a lot about her early years and the mistakes I made in raising her and not addressing or not addressing appropriately race with her. And I wanted to talk about where she is now. Remember back when I was talking about the ages and stages and what happens for kids developmentally around race, identity, and biases, how they become fixed by around ages 10 to 12 um, and remain even more fixed going forward unless there's a life-altering event that can change and challenge those. Well, that just happened with my oldest daughter um, when she kind of started to understand basically what this Floyd murder represented. And she, for the first time on a very deep level, started to understand prejudice and racism in our country. And we've talked about it for years and shared about police brutality and Black Lives Matter, but it's now started to register with her on a more deep level. Um, it's pretty much all we've talked about for the last couple of weeks. And she's been trying to figure out her voice and how she should speak up. She's struggling with saying the so-called right thing and possibly still offending somebody. Or she's like worried that if she doesn't say enough that she'll be sending a different kind of message. And she struggles with not wanting to come off as a white savior, but at the same time wants to be a good ally and accomplice. So it's very nuanced and complex and we're kind of helping her kind of struggle with this as we're struggling with it ourselves as well. Well, she came to us um, last Friday night um, and said that she really wanted to go to the peaceful protest that was being organized in downtown Seattle last Saturday. This was the first day of protesting. And we thought about it, we listened to her, and we decided to allow her to go um, as long as she went along with her father. And she got another friend and her father to go as well, and a few more uh, adult friends from our neighborhood. And uh, they went down, you know, cloaked with their masks and their gloves to be safe because of, of course, we're also dealing with the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, and they hoped to join in a peaceful march and hear speakers and listen to poetry, but that's not what happened. They could tell really quickly the tensions were very high and they saw what they described to be a lot of police force being used against these people who came to protest. There was a lot of confusion and huge crowds. At one point, my daughter's friend almost took a baton to her stomach by a police who was trying to stop people from going down certain streets and gathering. And uh, then they came upon these group of uh, it was three teenagers around the same age as my daughter and her friend, who were just crying out in pain because they just been sprayed in the face by the police while they were trying to get to the protest. They were carrying nothing but signs. Um, but nevertheless, um, they got sprayed. And so my daughter and her friend were able to kind of help flush out the water in these um, teenagers faces. And they said, you know, go care, be careful. And uh, there's a direct attempt by the police to block the protesters from protesting and gathering and so on. And right after about this, they left because they could just tell that things were not going well. Um, and since then, my daughter has done even more processing and she's gone from outbursts of frustration to feelings of hopelessness and sadness. Um, she's posted a lot on social media with all the rest of, you know, like-minded teenagers out there. Uh, that's where they go to, especially right now when they can't talk to their friends in person. She's been taking part in online debates and she's trying to figure out what she can do. Um, it's so difficult for her to not feel powerless, especially right now when she sees where we are as a society, recognizes how long this has been a problem. And she finally, at one point, kind of reached her breaking point and she said, I'm just 16 and I can't even vote yet. But as she's moved through these feelings, something really beautiful has happened. A true ally 
has really been born in my daughter. She really is not just participating in some social media trend because it's popular. The morning after she had her big, I can't even vote yet, um, meltdown, she uh, texted me and my husband first thing in the morning and she said, okay, I'm ready to take action and make a difference. I just donated money to a fund to support the protests and I have more plans. She's seeking out volunteer opportunities to aid with racial injustice groups and um, get out the vote in other ways that she can help and all of the inequities in our society when it comes to race. And she's also using her voice in smaller ways to speak up at school. And I wanted to end by reading some of her words. Uh, this week, one of her teachers shared photos of police kneeling with protesters in as an example of hope and inspiration during these protests and riots. And I know many people have found hope in these images, while other people find them to not be entirely based in uh, truth and authenticity. My daughter is among those who feels like it's just kind of like, um, it's a gesture, but it's not necessarily rooted in the kind of change that she would uh, like to see, that many people would like to see in terms of the system in place right now with the police. And my daughter's um, assignment to the class was to find a picture, an article, which they found to be inspirational and hopeful, like the photos of the kneeling police. And my daughter decided to do something different. She didn't want to actually do this assignment um, in the way in which he shared it because she did not see the photos of the kneeling police to be, as I said, authentic. So here's what she wrote, and I'm going to read a direct quote that she turned into her teacher. I don't want to pretend that these inspirational pictures are exactly like they seem, or these, quote, inspirational stories don't still have so much hurting behind them. But one thing I do find inspirational about this whole situation is the magnitude of it. When I attended one of the protests, I saw so many people there to support this cause, despite the violence we were being met with. This is the first time something like this has had this amount of coverage. For the LA riots, the outrage was mainly just in the LA area. But now riots and protests are happening not only across the country, but across the world. This is very inspirational because it shows that we are finally beginning to wake up and realizing the systematic racism and oppression that has been going on forever. So although I can't find a news article that resonates with me, this is what I find inspirational about these protests. And while having widespread protests and riots may seem like it's not, quote, good news, I think that the change we are going to see come from this will be the good news. So that is straight out of the mouth of one of the newest activists that have come from um, this period of time, my daughter, and also an example of how something that impacted her on such a deep level has kind of opened up the door to her really seeing things in a new way. And I hope it gives you hope when you think about having these conversations with your children of any age. And I hope you do so very soon. Again, like I mentioned, there are many resources. Um, if you go to my show notes, all the ones I mentioned in this podcast already are there so that you can continue to think about ways in which you will address race and racism with your children. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in this week to the 3D Parent Podcast. I hope it has provided you with the inspiration you need for building stronger relationships with your children and trusting your instincts when it comes to parenting. If you have a parenting question you'd like answered on the podcast, or if you'd like one-on-one -on -one parent coaching, head over to the3dparent.com and click the contact tab to send me your question. If today's discussion empowered your parenting, please be sure to subscribe to the show, leave a rating and a review. Also, I'd love to connect with you on social media. So take a screenshot, share it on your Instagram stories and tag me at the3dparent. I look forward to meeting you here again next week on the 3D Parent Podcast.